to the good old days. Show me some hands. Anybody do that? A couple of, yeah, maybe. Well, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I find sometimes, especially as I get older, that there are more things that I can look back on and go, oh, that was so good. Like when I could run down the seafront and not get out of puff. <laughs> when I could maybe run up and down the stairs and not really think twice about it. Um, do a really hard gym training session and not feel like, oh my goodness, my legs are just going to fall off. Um, maybe there's other things that sometimes we look back on and we think they were the good days and now it's a little bit tougher. But also, of course, sometimes we look back into the past and they can be things that weren't so good. And we think, actually, I prefer to forget that. And there are times in my life where sometimes I'll stand here and I think, not literally here, but, you know, in my life, and I'll think to myself, Lord, I'm so grateful. It might be tough now, but it's nowhere near as tough before I knew you. You know, before I knew Jesus, life was tough. So tough in so many ways. Now I know Jesus, life is tough. But you know what? There's a hope. There's a saviour. There's the anchor of our soul. So when we look at this psalm, we're going to see a good example of somebody that looks back in his life, also looks at the present and looks to the future. So if you can just um, turn to your, if you haven't already, make sure that you've got Psalm 137 in front of you. We will use the screens. There'll be some other scriptures that I'm bringing in tonight as well. So I think it would just be handy if we have that psalm in front of us. Um, Has anyone got a, I think I did write down a page number actually. So I put it, page 627, if you're not sure. So let's start with who wrote this psalm. Some think that this was Jeremiah the prophet. So often we think of all the Psalms having been written by David, but they're not all written by David. And some people, some scholars, think that it was written by Jeremiah. Does anyone know what Jeremiah was often referred to as a prophet? He had another kind of adjective before the name prophet that a lot of people used. Anyone know? It's not very... I can hear some little hump... Weeping, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I like, actually, I've not heard of the weeping one. Often I hear the one depressed, depressed prophet. But actually, you know, if we read his story, it's really clear to see why he would have had a less than cheery attitude. He had to bring strong words from the Lord to the people of God, asking them to repent and turn away from their ways, or this will happen, or that will happen, for 40 years So when we talk about, you know, oh, this is a bit of a difficult scripture or there might be things that we don't want to share in Bible study or biblical foundations, things might come up. That's just one little pocket of time. 40 years he had to do that. Um, But during this uh, talk this evening, I'll be referring to the psalmist just because we don't know 100% whether it was Jeremiah. And this psalm, I'm giving a bit of history because I think it's really going to help us to grapple with what this says to us for today. This was um, possibly written during, but likely after, the Babylonian captivity and the Israelites' exile from Jerusalem. If you look at verses one to three, you'll see that it's written with the past tense. So you've got, we sat, we wept, we remembered, um, we hung, they asked. So he's talking about the past. 
Then, when we go into into verses 4 to 6, he changes to the present tense. And when he's changing to the present tense, if we believe that he did actually write this after the event, we can see that he is recalling something that was such a deep, deep atrocity and collection, recollection of pain of what happened. So in today's language, we might call it trauma or post-traumatic stress, when a past event has been so um, above and beyond our capability to make sense of that we can relive it in the present. However, as our psalmist shows us, there is a future, and he finishes with looking to the future. So I'm hoping as we go through this evening, we'll see that same thing of what we can do in our lives when life can be a little bit difficult. So why then? What was he remembering that was just so awful? Well, the story can be found in 2 Kings 25. So God's people, the Israelites, have been in Jerusalem, here referred to as Zion, when the Babylonians invaded. Now, this siege lasted two years, and it resulted in famine. Zedekiah was their king, and he was captured. The Babylonians killed his sons in front of him and blinded him, so that that was the last image that he saw. The temple was looted. It was burned down. Now, don't you think that would be horrific for any peoples, any nation, But there's a whole other layer going on here. Zion, it's all hinges around Zion. Zion was often referred to as the city of God. It's the place where God of Israel dwelt. There's a few scriptures I'm going to have come up on the screen, which will give you reference points if at any point you wanted to take a note and check these out. But I'm just going to give you some things that Zion meant that we can see in the Bible. If they don't come up, don't worry, because I'm going to say them as well. Okay, so first of all, they lived somewhere where they knew that God was their king. And you can find that in Isaiah 24, 3. David was put into kingship there. That's Psalm 2, 6. Even further back is where Abraham trusted God to provide an alternative sacrifice for his son, that's Isaiah 24:23, And even further back than that, where Jacob climbed the ladder to heaven, Genesis 28, 11 to 12. So of course, I don't expect you to be trying to find those in a hurry now, but if you wanted to check them out at some point, do go ahead. So they had this amazing situation in Jerusalem. Now, in contrast, Nebuchadnezzar II was in rule in Babylon, And he worshipped Marduk, and he was a very destructive god in the Babylonian creation myth called Enuma Elish. It's very, very different to our biblical creation story that shows us a creator god of love and care and um, gentleness. So very two opposing beliefs and forces. So suddenly, this people of Israel, with their loving, just God as their king, with his presence among them, find themselves in a foreign land, not just physically, but spiritually. Remember, Jerusalem represented God's covenant, the temple where his presence dwelt, his kingship, atonement, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Does that remind you of anybody that we know? Anyone? 
I can't hear anything this evening. Has everyone lost their voices? <laughs> so in Babylon, these um, children of God, the Israelites, would have been taken to be slaves. And to add insult to injury, look at verse 3. Their captors were asking them to sing songs. And he refers to them as tormentors. They were basically goading them. You know, like that horrible situation that sometimes people experience in school, or you may have experienced even yourself, where people are going, no, 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 no. It's like they're egging them on. They're asking them to sing their worship songs, but they're asking them to sing them for entertainment, not for worship. And this psalmist is very, very clear that he's not going to be pulled into such a thing. He knew that their songs of worship not to be lightly sung, not to be squandered away, and to do so would be tantamount to him completely forgetting Jerusalem and all that it stood for. In fact, he was so determined to keep his faith. Check out what he asks God to do. In verse, where are we? Four, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, May my right hand forget its skill. He's saying, if I'm ever tempted to do this, to forget that these are really important worship songs and I move into a place of entertainment for these people, make it impossible. Mean that I can't play an instrument. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. Make it so that I can't sing. So he's asking God that if ever he was tempted to go into that, he doesn't want to to be able to. He even says, if... If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, he's saying, you know, my commitment to my homeland where you dwell, God, is higher than any joy that I might be able to find in the present situation. He was so committed to following God and honouring his ways. It reminds me of the song we sang about being set apart, being holy, set apart to serve the Lord. He was really committed, wasn't he, to his homeland, and I wonder, how many of you have one of these? It's not as many of you as I thought, actually. Oh, there you go. Okay, you can see a few more. Okay, I brought mine along as well. Can any of you remember, it's a passport, in case you can't quite see the visual, or you're listening on podcast. Can anybody remember what it says under nationality? Remember what the wording says? Yeah, New Zealand, good one. What's the word after it? Awesome, awesome New Zealand. Okay, mine says British, and there's another word, citizen. Okay, so citizen. This psalmist knew where his citizenship was, didn't he? He knew that it was in his homeland. And what does the citizenship give us? What does his passport say? It gives us a legal status. It gives us rights and responsibilities. It's where we belong and we're recognised as being part of that community. Do we have a new slide up? Because I can't see from here. Has the next, next visual gone up? Yeah. So the reason I put that one up is because it's a passport that has been... I didn't design it. This is something you can find on the internet. Where people talk about us being citizens of heaven. That's where we belong. We might physically live here. Our passports might say that we're British or New New Zealand, from New Zealand, yeah, or wherever else any of us might have on our passports. But God says that we're citizens of heaven. 
And this is what the psalmist here is emphasising. If we just go back to our psalm again for a minute, back to verses 1 to 3, we can see also that the language here is plural. So you can see he's writing, we sat, we remembered, we hung, they're our captors, our tormentors. So this is like the psalm of lament that Nick was talking about previously, where he's grieving the loss of his homeland, but it's a communal lament. They're all grieving the loss of their loved ones and their homeland. It's a community or a body of people that are gathering together. Sometimes we might need to do that. Sometimes we might need to think, you know, together we want to seek the Lord and we want to actually come down on our knees. We might want to weep together. And that's okay for us to do. Because we know, don't we, that in the change, in all the things that we might be facing, Jesus is the anchor of our soul. So let's ask another couple of rhetorical questions this time. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to say anything back. Are we living as those exiled or those brought home? Are we determined to stay true to the Lord or be swayed by the culture we find ourselves in? Because sometimes we look back and as I said, it can be good things and we might need to mourn the loss of that. Sometimes we look back, it's full of pain and we prefer not to remember or to forget. But let's look now, not at what I've been talking about, our earthly heritage, but our spiritual heritage in scripture. So please turn with me to Romans 4, 13, 16. So we're doing Romans 4, we're doing verses 13, verse 13, and then skipping to verse 16. It's on page 1131 of your church Bibles. So it says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Then skip to verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. So although we, as in humanity, were exiled from God's kingdom way back in the Garden of Eden, put out of the Garden of Eden, put out of the purity of fellowship with God through faith and in the sacrifice and salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are returned from exile. So we're returned from living apart from him back into fellowship with the Lord God and with one another. Hebrews 12.22 says, in fact, this is where we are in our citizenship, you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And what does Zion mean again? Can anybody remember? Because this is what the Bible's telling us. This is where we belong. This is where we're living in a spiritual, like a spiritual Zion. Can we remember any of them? Oh dear. Okay, God's dwelling place. God's rule and reign or kingship. God's covenantal promises, 
the temple, atonement, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So this, brothers and sisters, is our home through Jesus. And to understand it even more fully, what it's like living within God's kingdom or what it's like living outside of God's kingdom, Philippians 3, 18 to 21, gives us really good insight. So you don't have to turn, I'll just read it for you and it should come up on the screen. Philippians 3, 18 to 21. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our holy bodies, our lowly bodies, sorry, so that they will be like his glorious body. Because we know, don't we, that although we have the reality of a spiritual kingdom, which is sometimes reflected on earth, we do still await our saviour. We can still sometimes feel far from our home, can't we? We can see death and destruction around us. We can see wars. We can see corruption in the church, personal difficulties and injustice. So instead of looking back, we can sometimes look forward, can't we? And sometimes it's a real hope and we see the joy of what's to come. But sometimes even with that, we can feel a bit of frustration that we're not yet there. And there is where there's going to be no mourning, no crying, no pain. So we live in this tension where we've received part of the promise, but the fulfilment is still to come. So we have that hope and that joy for the future. And if you want a really beautiful illustration of that holy city, the New Jerusalem, check out Revelation 21. Now, so I don't get sidetracked, we're going back to our psalm and we're finishing off the last section. So we're looking now to verse 7. And here the psalmist is saying, remember the Edomites. Now often when we read in the Bible, somebody's petitioning God and saying, remember them, remember them in a good way. Yeah, he's calling down for God to give a blessing to the people. Well, in this case, he's calling down a curse. He's basically recalling what they said. And it's really significant because of one, who they are, two, what they did, and three, what they meant. They're the descendants of Esau. Do you remember Esau? He sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup, yeah? And Jacob became the father of the Israelites, whereas Esau and his followers were pagan. And although they were related, this battle and this jealousy continued in their lives, and that caused this continual battle um, and hatred, really, toward the Israelites from the Edomites. They rejoiced in Babylon's cruel attack on Jerusalem. They wanted the city, if you look at the words, it says they wanted the city to be, uh, what does it say in this version? Because it was slightly different in mine. Tear it down to its foundations. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. And that wasn't just physical. That was spiritual. Foundations meant they wanted to destroy the God of Israel. Israel. 
And then in verse 8, the psalmist proclaims. If you notice, we look at verse 8. It's quite interesting, I think. It says, daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. He's not praying, please destroy them. They've been really bad. Go and do something bad to them. He's saying they will be. He's trusting in the nature of God. He's trusting in God's promises and justice for those that do evil. And I think this final verse, verse nine, can sometimes be a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. It can raise questions, can't it, over God's ways, over God's people and how they might behave. But I'm really hoping that against the backdrop that I've set out for you with this psalm, that we can look at the fact that this is a people trusting in the promises of God when they've come through the vilest of sieges, that they're trusting in his nature. And if it still feels hard to understand, just imagine that you saw your whole family and loved ones raped, violently killed, and then you were taken captive, put to work as a slave in a foreign country. You know, it's not actually far from the truth for some of our brothers and sisters around the world. And we have trafficking right here in our own city. Wouldn't you and don't you want justice to be done? Some might say that this psalmist wants revenge, but I say that revenge is taking things into our own hands and retaliating. But what this psalmist is doing is taking the pain to the Lord, being real, and then trusting in God's nature, trusting in his justice and his promises. So, as we come to the end of today, this evening's message, we're going to enter into a time of just reflection and just think about what God's been saying to us through this. But I'm just going to quickly summarise. The main point I think that this psalmist is trying to get across to us and God's trying to speak to us about is that when life gets really tough, either the past, the present or the future, that we might be looking towards something that looks difficult, we put our trust and our faith in our citizenship being in heaven. And we trust and walk with the promise of God's grace, mercy and justice. I'm just going to pray as we move into a time of reflection. Father God, I just thank you for this evening. 